Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Let's get underway. Let's go. Go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today, and this will be a really fun episode, is Tim Cohn. He's Economics on Twitter. He's our resident NFL offensive lineman. I looked up his stats before we started. This is according to the combine. He's six foot five, three hundred and thirty pounds. He runs the forty in five point three one. Oh, that's wrong. <laughs> that's what no, they. Best, that's what they recorded. I, oh my goodness! No, no, no. Actually, um, in the combine, I ran a five one two, and outside of that, I ran under five. Um, that was actually my forte was running. I, I wasn't a very good football player. I was actually a better athlete. Well, we're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, my absolute pleasure. So I, I, was, uh, I wanted to look up some of the statistics about how hard it is to get from high school football into the NFL, and this is what I found online. High school football to college, the chance of getting in uh, about 5.8% of guys get through. Uh, college to the NFL is about 2%. Your chance of getting from high school to the NFL is 9 in 10,000, um, which is the equivalent of, of having an IQ over 150, and the average PhD IQ is 130. And I think that that's, that's an interesting thing because uh, the Wonderlic test, which is one of the... Well, you might have to tell us what the Wonderlic test is, but you topped the Wonderlic test. What, what's the Wonderlic test? Basically, it was the uh, kind of the default IQ test that the NFL adopted for NFL players. And I imagine what appealed to them was the fact that it was only 12 minutes long, uh, which, <laughs> frankly, I think it respects the, the tension span of most of us as we're entering into the NFL. Uh, so you answer 50 questions that get progressively harder over a 12-minute span. And the first five or 10 are appallingly easy. It's like, oh, my goodness, why am I even bothering with this? And then by the time you get to, say, 25, 30, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is getting real. And around 40, it's like, oh, gosh, I, I should have paid more attention in class. Um, <laughs> so it, it's essentially just a, a measure that, you know, obviously it's not a perfect one, but it, it's one that they kind of get a fast and dirty sense of gray matter. I saw you talking about it on Twitter a little while ago, and I went and sat one online when I found it. It's the 50 questions in 12 minutes. And I've got to say, I've, I've never felt claustrophobia like that before. As they got, <laughs> you've got about 15 seconds to get through the, the questions. And as you, as you point out, the first ones, are, they take about five seconds. And then you get to these questions that you really need 30 seconds to figure them out. And they just, you just get further and further behind. It's absolutely terrifying. So my hat's off to you, sir, for getting through that. <laughs> So you were you were a four-year starter, team captain at Iowa State. Tell us a little bit about your career there. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is I was probably the most unlikely college player that you could imagine. I was tall and geeky, which is, uh, I guess, maybe a, a prerequisite for a lot of offensive linemen. 
Um, but I was really more of a basketball player. I did not play football till my junior year in high school. And even then I, I didn't play much. I was kind of on special teams. I was six foot six and about, uh, 210 pounds and still not really strong. I was kind of a string bean. I got up to 250 my senior year, uh, still wasn't widely recruited. And somehow I caught the eye of some major programs after playing in the, um, the high school playoffs. I had a uh, great showings against a lot of players who were well-regarded and uh, that got me situated at Iowa State, which frankly, it, at that point, I'm already playing with house money. I'm getting my school paid for. This is great. I get to you know play against some top flight competition. And uh, I never really, I guess, kind of a habit instilled from high school to college and thereafter is that I never actually set far in the distance type of goals. Everything is, what is the next most important priority I need to address or can address right now? and just make steady incremental progress. And it's amazing what it accumulates to. Uh, so from a college standpoint, I started as a defensive lineman, moved over to offensive line when they decided that of all the things in football I did well, eating was probably number one. <laughs> um, they also said, and my offensive line coach, Steve Loney, um, who's a, a coach in the NFL for several years, fantastic guy, probably one of my favorite people um, playing ball. He had this term for me, he said, Timothy, you are the smartest dumb guy I've ever met. <laughs> Or actually, I got that backwards. I'm the dumbest smart guy he's ever met. Because I got into things where, you know, um, I think I might have even told you a story. I jumped off sides three times in one game. Three times in a row. Which you never see an offensive lineman substituted in the middle of a series. Well, I got substituted out. They pulled me out. And he was out of his head um, at that point. But um, So college was a, an interesting experience. And incrementally, year by year, um, I became more and more relevant. I had a, a running back who was a Heisman candidate uh, two years in a row, um, finished, I think, fifth and then second in those two years. And back then, you didn't have football on TV everywhere. You didn't even have YouTube showing highlights of things. We were only on TV one week a year against when we played the Iowa Hawkeyes. So there wasn't much media exposure for any of us, but there were a lot of highlights of Troy Davis, our running back, running. And typically, I'd be in frame. So a lot of national sports writers say, hey, who's number 77? That guy blocking for Troy Davis. And I defaulted onto a lot of preseason and postseason honors list my junior year, and all of a sudden being a, a pro football player became a, a potential reality. So what's that process like? How do they? Uh, how, how do you know that you're sort of on their radar screen, and then what, what do you need to do to sort of progress <laughs> to the next level? The first clue is when agents start calling you. Right. <laughs> they're, they're fishing. They want to find somebody who they're looking for a value stock, right? I mean, right. Um, if, if you're already a top flight guy, you're getting the attention of all the, you know, the, the major institutional players. Now um, you're getting, I, I was a micro cap, so to speak. Um, <laughs> you, you're not a micro down. cap. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, and that's the only micro thing about me at the time. I was about 330 coming out of, um, oh, well, about 323, I think, when the Raiders actually drafted me. But um, yes, I mean, it was a situation where, you know, agents were starting to call me and let me know, hey, you know, scouts are noticing. And then you'd hear from, you know, your football coaches that, uh, hey, some scouts were in to watch Troy, but they also wanted to see some film of you. Um, so you, you kind of get some early indications that way. Um, you also know that the more press that you would get, typically um, it would build some momentum around your brand. Your stock is literally rising. And I actually use this to my advantage. I, I'm not somebody that had any kind of public speaking or communication training, but I realized, you know, the better I can help solve the reporter's problems and giving them interesting quotes or perspectives, the more often I'll find myself on TV, radio, or in print, 
And the more often I'm in print, the more people will just kind of think, oh, well, this guy must be one of the best players on the team. Yeah. So I always took pains to make sure that I offered some interesting commentary. And I remember there's one game where we played against uh, University of Northern Iowa, and we'd had some trouble with them in the past. And we had one drive where we drove over, I think, 95 yards, about 11 or 12 rushing plays, no passing plays. We just grounded out, scored a touchdown. And the reporters asked me about that. And I said, well, that drive was the catharsis of our frustration. <laughs> At which point, the next day when we're warming up, you know, essentially uh, getting ready for our post-game practice, I can hear my offensive line coach, Steve Loney, coming down. And he's just like, Timothy, Timothy. He's holding a newspaper. And he's saying, Timothy. What in the hell is a catharsis? <laughs> Sorry, Coach. And, you know, the psychology department at Iowa State was absolutely thrilled. They're like, hey, a football player used this term in the right context. <laughs> you know, the bigotry of soft expectations, right? Um, <laughs> low expectations. But uh, it was a great experience from a college standpoint. Um, I had interest from bigger programs, and I doubt I actually would have had a pro career to speak of if I hadn't been at Iowa State, if I hadn't been – um, essentially blocking for, you know, Troy Davis, who was a, a fantastic college back. What don't folks know about the offensive line that, what are the special skills that you need or what goes on in the line that we don't know about? <laughs> you know, the one thing is that uh, offensive linemen actually take pride in their anonymity to a great extent. I mean, you see some exceptions, but um, I remember when I was on the Broncos, um, this was instilled by the, the coach, uh, Coach Gibbs, um, but there was a rule that anytime you were actually in print in the media or on the media for anything, you owed a fine to the team fund for a party at the end of the year. And so when uh, Mark Schlereth, who's, you know, very right. well known. On, Big Stink. Um, yeah, uh, Stink was actually uh, on a lot of Campbell's commercials back then. This is when the Broncos were going to the Super Bowl regularly and Terrell Davis was on these commercials and, and Stink was on them. And Coach Gibbs was always delighted. It's like, Stink, every time I see you on TV – I know I'm putting in another $100 <laughs> into the party fund. It's like, ah, oh, crud. Um, we, we actually, in a way, take a, a perverse joy in being the facilitators of success, even if we aren't directly the ones that are, you know, getting the laurels, you know. And that's actually something that is kind of ingrained in me, too. I've, I've never had the attitude where, frankly, I had to be the, the sole recipient of any credit of any kind in any type of success. I just wanted to make sure that I was doing my part to, to drive the outcome. And uh, blocking and tackling, um, you know, that's a, a big part of, uh, you know, what I'm about. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the draft because that's, that's uh, something that I think that a lot of us who are fans have watched uh, the, the documentaries and so on on television. So you went round three. What, what's that like? You watch the, you watch <laughs> the, uh, the stars go through on round one, but you, you, that's a, it's a huge achievement. So what, what's the, how, do you, how are you feeling by, round, by day three? Well, actually, um, it was a different structure back then. Right. As, uh, well, and here's the weird thing. I'm, I'm in Iowa during the draft, and the first and second rounds are on ESPN. The third round, and every round thereafter, is on ESPN2. No problem today. Back then, ESPN2 wasn't on every cable system. It was something that, frankly, was a, a nice-to-have. So I knew I was probably going to be drafted on ESPN2, not ESPN. Um, so we were like, well, what do we do? And... Fortunately, the basketball coach at Iowa State at the time, Tim Floyd, their basketball offices next to the um, Coliseum had a satellite. So they had ESPN2. They basically offered my family the use of his office. So we went there, grateful, watching it on a big screen, um, you know, nervous, obviously, not knowing what to expect. 
And the uh, situation got a, a little bit more disrupted by the fact that at the same time that the draft was going on, Kiss was having a concert right there in the Coliseum. <laughs> so, I mean, the music is pounding through the walls. And we can barely hear, I can barely hear the brick cell phone that I rented for one month because this was 1997. <laughs> um, that I, I'd given the number to my agent, to all the front offices of the, the NFL teams and a very select number of other people because I didn't want anybody else ringing on it. And, and we're sitting there watching the draft and I get a call midway through the third round, and it's my agent. And he's saying, Tim, I got some great news. A buddy of mine in Dallas is listening to their sports radio, and they say that the Cowboys have you next on their draft board. And I'm thrilled because the Cowboys are a great team. They've got a great offensive line coach. It seemed like, wow, this is going to be incredibly great. And so I hang up, and it's a few minutes later that the phone rings again. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is it. And I pick up the phone, and what kind of threw me off, honestly, was that it was a woman's voice. Um, because you don't necessarily at the time expected to hear, you know, women being involved in like a lot of the front office decisions, what have you. And she said, hello, is Tim Cohn there? I said, uh, yeah, this is Tim. Well, congratulations. You've been drafted by the Oakland Raiders. I'm thinking, okay, a little bit of context here about the Raiders. My agent said that all but two teams did due diligence on me. And one of the two that didn't were the Raiders. So there was really no expectation that they'd have any interest, let alone investing a third-round pick in somebody like me. They never talked to me, never worked me out, never did anything. So I'm thinking that this is total BS. And I'm picking up the phone and saying, you know what? This isn't funny. If this is Doug's girlfriend, I don't need these types of calls. There's <laughs> enough stuff going on. So said, I don't know who Doug is. Hold on for Coach Bugle. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? And then I hear a man's voice, and it's Joe Bugle. He says, is this Tim Cohn? Oh, man, I'm so screwed. And he says, yeah, coach, I hear you're quite a character. I'm like, oh, man, I guess you have no idea. Um, so that was kind of the, the good news. Obviously, being drafted in the third round in the Raiders, that was kind of a cool idea that I'd never even thought about. Um, but the bad thing was that my wife and I had set our wedding for a couple weeks after the draft and on, on a weekend where all the teams that showed interest in me did not have minicamp. Oh, so no. it would be... What's the weekend that the Raiders have minicamp? It's right on my wedding. Oh, no. So my wife is literally bawling, or my wife-to-be. She's just absolutely, I mean, she'd invested so much time in, you know, bringing family together for the wedding. And then so my agent worked a miracle, had me fly in early, do some stuff, uh, you know, practice uh, all day Friday, um, leave overnight. Uh, basically did the uh, red eye, landed in Chicago at 6 a.m., had breakfast with my agent, got into Des Moines around 8.30 went up to the tuck shop, got my tucks. I missed my rehearsal dinner. I am dehydrated. I've got essentially tan lines from my football helmet around my face. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, it could have been a disaster. And yet somehow the wedding went perfectly well. Um, I didn't fall over at my first drink, you know, being dehydrated, <laughs> exhausted, um, you know, when the reception kicked in. And soon thereafter, it was just, a, you know, getting acclimated, transitioning to being an Oakland Raider. What a good woman. Um uh... What, Very much so. What, uh, what, 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 why did the Raiders not do any diligence and why did they pick you up? There's, a, <clears throat> there's an unofficial story around this, and that was that um, Al Davis has a, a, had a very competitive relationship with Jerry Jones. And he found out that Jerry Jones wanted uh... to draft me, so he picked me two picks before the Cowboys pick. Um, and they didn't, they had absolutely zero need of a guy like me because earlier in that same round, the third round, they drafted a guy from Nebraska who was the same size as me, played left tackle, all the same. They basically picked two of a kind in the same round, 
just to basically peak Jerry Jones and the Cowboys. And um, this happened again later on in the draft uh, with uh, Chad Levitt. I think the Raiders in the late fourth round um, picked him up when, um, you know, essentially uh, I think it was Jimmy Johnson and the Dolphins were really keen on picking him up early in the fifth round. So it wasn't necessarily a meritocracy that, you know, gained me, um, I would say, my uh, position with the Raiders. But in hindsight, I probably would have had a longer career had I gone to Dallas or even fallen to the fourth round and gone to, like, the Eagles or um, the Ravens. But, um, you know, it's weird being in my 40s now. I'm genuinely grateful for the fact that I had a brief career, even yeah. though that meant that I had to endure a great part of my post-football life being on the top 10 draft busts of an Oakland Raider history. <laughs> I mean... That's rude. But you, 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 you end up playing for the Broncos as well. You go to Australia to do a demonstration <laughs> game. So, so what, tell us that story. Oh, my goodness. Um, so much good stuff with that. Um, actually, that was, um, I, I believe, right before Sydney hosted the Olympics. So they had the brand new stadium for us to um, occupy. We were, uh, the Broncos were playing the Chargers. And um, why can't I remember his name? Um, he was uh, the Chargers punter. Um, is it? Darren or something. I, uh, he was an Australian. And uh, so, I mean, that was kind of the, the linkage there. And uh, man, there's a lot of stories about that whole experience. But uh, I mean, like uh, one very well-known Bronco first night out went to um, uh, the red light district, Christ Cross, I think in Sydney and um, the cross. Pick- yeah. It's, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit cleaner now than it was then, but yeah. Uh- well, 20 years ago, he made an Eddie Murphy style mistake. Um, if, if that kind of that reference <laughs> Um, possibly, uh, anyway, yeah, we got to keep this one safe for work. Yeah. So, uh, any rate, (laughs) it's a, it was an interesting week. We, uh, I got to understand what getting your beef served blue meant, you know, don't don't get the blue rare. Oh my goodness. Um, so I'm amazed I didn't come away with like some kind of like trichinosis or something. You you want to tell everybody what blue rare is, but essentially it means that, um, essentially it's still mooing, right? I mean, it's, it's that rare. Um, it's cold, it's purple. Um, yeah. Yeah, I you know, and it's I it's almost food. like it's almost like you get the uh, you know when you get pokey and it's kind of like they just sear it on the outside and the the inside and you can get a cool, you can get a warm blue which is they actually get it a little bit warmer for you or you can get a cold blue which is just inedible for anybody. But sorry, I've interrupted. Keep going. No, no, I mean, and, and that's I had great food in um, Sydney, and I mean, um, I think I had some uh, fish and chips with um, Pacific Hake, which I thought was great fish. I had never had that before, so. Um, I, you know, it was just a, an unusual experience because I was very much a marginal player. I did not actually get into the preseason game because I was so bad. They were worried that I would get hurt and be on their injured reserve. So at that time we had watched the movie office space, which I assume most people are familiar with. It was, this was on SpectreVision down there um, at the time it was a 1999 movie. And we watched it as an offensive line unit in the hotel probably for like three nights straight. We got it memorized. We were saying all the lines in the locker room. And it was then that I realized that I was Milton on the Broncos. (laughs) They actually did not have a locker for me because um, essentially those lockers, locker rooms in Sydney were not built for NFL squads, especially a pre-cut down. So they set up all my pads and equipment in the lavatory, in the, in the stall. So I basically had my shoulder pads, helmet, everything else like that. Anytime that somebody needed to relieve themselves, I had to kind of clear out and let them essentially steam my clothes, um, whatever the case might be. And and so, I mean, I was totally the person that was essentially being Milton, you know, like, oh, we're going to have to have you move to the back. Is that all right? And, oh, yeah, you know, um, 
we actually uh, we, we want to save some fuel on the flight back to America, so we're just going to put you in a boat so you can row back. And, you know, if you can be back in time for practice, that'd be great. Um, so I, I basically started doing Bill Lumberg impersonations all over the place, and uh, that is actually, I think, if you talk to uh, Stink or anybody else on that team, that's probably what they remember most about me is the, <laughs> yeah, Tim, what's happening? Yeah, you know, it's just... We're going to kind of need you to clear out of this locker room and maybe go get changed in the hall. Okay, great. You know, so, um, but I mean, it was, it was a great experience in the sense that, man, that's the first time I left the continent. And um, uh, I'm just sad, sad that Australia has ceased to exist. Since yeah, so let's let's go into that. You're, you're an Australia truther now. What's, what's an Australia truther? <laughs> I, I just, I found it so hilarious. I can't remember when uh, this went viral, but when um, uh, that uh, professor, I think it was from like... Uh, uh, Southern New Hampshire University or something like that, essentially criticized a student for basically asserting that Australia was a real place. And no, Australia is not a real place. And not sure what she was confusing with, but I, I just thought that was too funny to leave alone. So anytime there was something about, you know, obviously Australia's got distinctive wildlife. Australia never has a recession. I mean, my goodness, this can't be a real place, right? It sounds like it doesn't uh, exist. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's obviously a lot of fun. Um, I think but, it's uh, part of the. I think it's part of the flat Earth because because Australia <laughs> because it's down under, therefore it must not exist because there's no down under on the flat Earth. I mean, and you know, frankly, Sydney at the time, twenty years ago, and I'm sure even more so now, left a great impression. I mean, I actually do love Australia and would go back if um, the the trip wasn't inordinately long coming from Iowa. Um, I, I hear but, uh, you. it's a long trip even from Los Angeles. So let me let me uh, let's. You transition out of the NFL and into finance, and you've got your CFA some stage through there. So, how how, how was that process? What was that transition like? You know, I didn't figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up until I was 27, <laughs> until I was clear of the NFL. And at Iowa State, um, which is an engineering and a STEM school, I, of course, you know, went into liberal arts. I was in political science, international studies. I avoided math phobically. And you know, I basically had no interest in finance or business of any sort. I thought I was going to do maybe pre-law was essentially my game plan. And then once I was in pro football, I had a little bit of extra money. I you know, thought, gosh, I need to invest it. And to my chagrin, I found out that I was the only guy in the locker room losing money in stocks in the late 90s. And there's a lot of stuff that was involved with why. Other, you know, I just I was uh, being dealt with unethically. I'd probably put it that way. And by the way, if there's ever been a contrarian indicator in hindsight that I just think is absolutely astounding, you, we have TVs in the, in the locker rooms, as you would expect, even back then, 20 years ago. And do we have ESPN on? Mostly. But in 1999, everybody had CNBC on. And it was a probably the most contrarian indicator that you have guys that, you know, barely think about anything besides football are now all of a sudden fixated on finance. The business section of USA Today, all the newspapers around the facility, business section was always unaccounted for. You, you could actually read the sports section there. Um, you couldn't find the business section because somebody else was already reading it. So you knew how great or how strong practice would be based on how the NASDAQ did that day. If the NASDAQ closed up 50 points, man, you saw a spirited practice. People were sprinting through drills and it was crisp. And if Yahoo basically disappointed on earnings and the NASDAQ dropped 40 points, man, you never saw a sorrier bunch of dogs he had to whip through a practice. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in hindsight, I have the recognition from, you know, 1999 that, gosh, that there were a lot of signals. You know, we um, we couldn't say we weren't warned. You know, when you had that whole um, shoeshine boy type of, you know, yeah. anecdotes with regards to, um, you know, uh, the euphoria of the market at that time. But 
Um, so I, I, not being a business or finance Just guy. Just tell, tell us your phone.com story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, Monday Night Football, 1999. I'm with the Raiders. And we're playing against the Denver Broncos. And our pregame meal, um, pretty much, you know, it's usually several hours before you leave for the facility. And this was basically right at the market close. And one of my wide receiver teammates, who I will remain nameless just so that, you know, he can, you know, hold his head up. Um, he was day trading at the close. And then after he closed his laptop, comes by the table that I'm sitting at and says, Hey, come, you trade stocks? Like, not so much. I've got some mutual funds, but man, hey, dog. Phone.com, dog. Splitting three for one, dog. Like, really? Is that good? Yeah, man, three for one. Uh, what does phone.com do? It's splitting three for one. <laughs> Just so, like Buffett. Oh, my God, exactly. And so I, I thought, yeah, this is something that I'm not going to invest a whole lot of energy into. But then when I realized how far behind I was, everybody else, from an investment standpoint, going backwards, nothing motivates like humiliation. And um, you, you swallow a lot of ego to try to overcome some deficiencies when you're confronted with them. The first book I read in finance was a Suze Orman book. I think it was like the nine steps to financial freedom. And uh, obviously there's no pride or dignity involved. I'm just <laughs> leaping through this and everything is a revelation because I never knew any of this stuff before. And the more I learned about the unforced errors that I had committed um, up to that point, the more I realized this is really genuinely interesting to me. I think that there's a lot of football players, including guys that in the NFL, you have a 401k plan that matches two for one. So you put in 18,000, you've got 54,000 working for you. And yet it was a crime how many players would actually refuse to contribute anything and allow that 18,000 to become 9,000 net of all the taxes and deductions and things like that. Uh, 9,000 versus 54,000. And there was, uh, unfortunately, it, it was distressing. There's a lot of players that needed help from a financial literacy standpoint, um, a lot of unforced errors, a lot of, frankly, uh, errors of omission or laziness in some cases, because frankly, finance didn't have the same appeal as what was happening on a football field for a lot of those guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, from that point forward, um, life after football is going to be finance. And um, I, I started at a wirehouse through an NFL partner program, moved uh, promptly to Schwab, working literally the 1-800 line, you know, starting at the very bottom, no ego involved. And during that time, um, just realized that, hey, I got to fight to at least catch up to where other people my age are at in terms of acumen and understanding. So got my CFP, got my MBA in finance to really atone for what I should have been studying as an undergrad and then pursued the, the CFA, which I dare say was probably as challenging or more challenging than anything I accomplished from a football standpoint. So it's uh, I, the unicorn aspect, I guess, of my profile <laughs> is that I think I'm the only former or current NFL player to have the CFA charter. I, tried getting the CFA Institute to verify that and because they've got all the work experience of, uh, you know, their uh, charter holders. But um, I'm not so sure that uh, they didn't give me anything affirmative one way or the other on that. So I haven't seen anybody else. So I'm basically going to claim it. Yeah, you should say that. Just put a little star there. If someone if someone can show you otherwise, then, you know, yep. then you can take it down. Uh, how does football prepare you for a life in finance? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, frankly, uh, resilience, uh, risk management, um, because when you're a pro football player, um, you're trying to make sure that your greatest asset is your ability to earn an income. And your income depends on you protecting your knees, protecting your back, doing whatever it takes to essentially um, put yourself in a, a good position to succeed. Well, 
you know, sometimes it also means, hey, you want to, you know, budget or allocate your effort and, you know, other aspects uh, in terms of, you know, what you're doing on the football field. Um, the other aspect with uh, football is that it, it frankly gives you a sense of mortality. Um, everybody eventually will be confronted with the fact that their football career is finite um, in the same way that investors, you know, have to understand, hey, there's only so many years that I'm going to be able to put money away and then it's got to carry me the rest of the distance. Well, uh, a lot of football players get this in a concentrated dose. They are, if the average career is about three years or so, which mine happen to be, well, that's not going to be enough to carry you through your 30s, let alone your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so from that standpoint, um, you know, just being smart about, um, you know, marshalling your resources and keeping yourself in the game to a great extent. Um, football players do have some unique challenges, not just the unforced errors, but uh, you want to talk about as an asset, the most volatile asset imaginable is a football player's compensation. I mean, they could go hockey stick. They can go like I did to WeWork. You know, I mean, it's um, so I mean, making sure that the portfolio perhaps is less volatile is kind of a necessary diversification consideration for a lot of players that I don't think they necessarily buy into. You still hear or see football players that make very risky investments, typically with folks that they haven't done due diligence with. And, um, it, you know, essentially it's it's kind of predictable outcomes in many of those instances. There's not a lot of guaranteed pay in the NFL, is there? It's mostly you only you're only paid if you play. There's more and more these days, but man, when I played, um, I signed a five-year contract and I got cut after one year, um, which meant that the balance of the contract was gone. Um, the only thing that you could count on was the signing bonus up front. Uh, nowadays, you hear a lot more about guarantees and, and other types of things, and, and that's good. We're still not where Major League Baseball or the NBA is, where you know you could basically get a hangnail that takes you out of a few games, and you're still going to get paid. Or if you get cut, they still pay you, you know, the, the balance of your uh, contract. Um, so it's not quite at that point. But then again, given the, the injuries and given the physical damage, it's it's understanding, understandable how football teams, from a risk management standpoint, don't want to guarantee too much from, you know, obviously such a violent sport. So uh, let's talk a little bit about coconut risk. What is it? How do you avoid it? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, one of the things that I enjoy doing most, in, especially in the last uh, eight years of my career, is getting around the country and being able to talk to investors, retail investors mostly, but talk to investors about, you know, what's going on in the markets, you know, what should they be paying attention to, what shouldn't they be paying attention to. And if it's a new audience, I usually share this story with them because I think that there's some relevant lessons from it. And usually this is the part of the presentation where somebody's introduced me and they introduced me as a football player. And my credibility is already taken a hit with this audience because I look like I should be working somebody's security detail or maybe at bouncing outside a nightclub, not necessarily espousing on the market or global um, economy or anything like that. Um, and then they mentioned that I'm a football player. And so now I'm definitely damaged goods from their standpoint. How many concussions did he take? And <laughs> usually the first thing that I do highlight is like, hey, you know, the number, the total is actually under double digits. But the worst hit to the head that I ever got did not happen on a football field. It happens where most of us get clobbered over the head at a wedding. So I was at my brother's destination wedding in Jamaica. This was about seven years ago. Um, and it was at an all-inclusive resort beautiful grounds. They set up our table for the rehearsal dinner right on the beach. I mean, this was almost like just postcard, beautiful moonlit night, warm breezes, palm trees swaying. You had uh, waves lapping up on the beach, uh, food, libations, plentiful everywhere. 
it was around that time that I'm telling some type of off-color story to the table, which has my future in-laws to be second-guessing all their daughters' life choices. And literally in mid-sentence, I get struck over the head by a coconut. Coconut had dropped four stories, xylophone ricocheted off my head, landed in my wife's purse, and somehow I didn't get knocked out. My head went right into my hand. And there were some drunk Canadians that were walking by at that time. We'd met them earlier in the day, and they saw it happen. They said, dude, the coconut curved to hit him. <laughs> and everybody's like, just like, what the heck happened? There's a clamor. Somehow, like I said, I hadn't lost consciousness. My, the only thought that I could register was pain, 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 pain. My head down to my back was a tuning fork of pain. Once that subsided enough for me to have two thoughts in parallel, I still had pain, 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 pain. But now I also had another thought that, oh, no, I'm all wet. I must be busted open. I'm going to be a gory mess for all the wedding pictures. And I pull my hand away, and the fluid is clear. The coconut cracked on my head. <laughs> so I'm actually feeling you know, pretty good about this. Like, hey, my head is intact, and this coconut's all cracked. So um, they moved me to the nurse's station, which is basically the custodian's room with like a short little examination table. And a um, uh, doctor comes in from an hour away. He's like 20. And he comes in and he says, hey, man, I heard you got hit by a coconut, man. And I'm like, yeah, this coconut. And I'm holding it. He's like, oh, that's not such a big coconut, man. I'm like, oh, well, that's good to know. How about if I climb four stories, throw it to your head, see how well you turn out. Um, anyway, it's it one of those funny things where um, the morning after, I did not go to the hospital. I was not going to die in a Jamaican hospital. I feared if I'm going to die anywhere, I'll die on the premises of an all-inclusive resort. Um, but I did successfully wake up. And I was an immediate celebrity on the grounds of this resort because I, I think that everybody had heard that some big bald guy got hit by a coconut, or maybe it was just the fact that I had a six-inch unicorn horn sprouting out oh. of the side of my head from where the coconut hit. And you know, everybody was very courteous. And, How are you feeling today, Mr. Cohn? Would you like some breakfast today, Mr. Cohn? Are you feeling especially litigious today, Mr. Cohn? <laughs> and bottom line is anywhere now, after that whole experience, anytime I'm anywhere south and there's palm trees about, I'm immediately looking up. I'm scouting it out. I want to see if there's any coconuts dangling or hanging down from underneath. And in the process of keeping my eye on that coconut risk, inevitably, I stumble over something yeah. right in front of my feet that easily I could have just stepped right over. And for a lot of investors, especially retail investors, I mean, I could probably introduce you to a few people who've been in cash since 2008 or yeah. 2009. Um, there's investors who still are looking for coconuts, and they might have that coconut that has 2008 on it, or 2000 to 2002, or it might have a China trade deal or a Trump logo, you know, some other type of horrifying, but you know, arguably maybe a, a low probability risk relative to the ones that they are accepting that, frankly, could be much more easily and productively addressed. So trying to get folks to realize that anytime you're at one extreme or the other, overly bullish or overly bearish and despondent, you're basically, at one extreme or the other, you're depriving yourself of half your peripheral vision. You're basically rendering moot the half that goes beyond that extreme. Try to find ways of getting investors to, you know, essentially uh, regain some centrality in how they perceive markets, how they perceive their investment situation, recognize that it's not a one-size-fits-all type of situation. So uh, what have you been doing uh, as a, uh, in finance? What's the, what, what, have your, what have your roles typically tended to be? You know, I've actually done a little bit of everything. Um, from a retail client-facing standpoint, if it involves um, high net worth clients in particular, um, I've, I've done all nature of roles, predominantly with one company. With um, I don't know if I should mention the company in this context, but um, uh, 
company that describe them without using the name uh well gosh uh what's probably i, I guess a uh, zero dollar commissions um <laughs> maybe that might be uh, anonymous enough um but uh yeah it's a, a situation where i had a 19-year career doing a little bit of everything it was a fantastic environment to learn and to be able to be productive to, to learn all the right sales skills but not necessarily learn sales skills to the exclusion of everything else um, so essentially, I've done things such as being um, a financial advisor in the branch, been a, a portfolio consultant building portfolios for high net worth clients, um, been a manager of team of a team of portfolio consultants in that context. Um, for the last eight years, been a more of a product specialist. Um, you know, you kind of hear the word wholesaler is a dirty word, but uh, maybe more of a subject matter expert um, for a number of managed solutions and just trying to essentially. Uh, you know, do uh, presentations, workshops, things like that from in front of as many as like 300 people, as few as maybe a dozen people, depending on the circumstance. Uh, so that's been largely what I've been about um, uh, for the most part here. But everything I've ever done in this industry was something that I'd never done before and required some stretching. And then once I made that effort, I found that, my goodness, I love doing this. You know, there's something that's very appealing about it. So, you know, now that I'm kind of in a situation where I'm trying to look at, you know, what is my next chapter going to be? Um, I'm frankly very open-minded. Um, there's a lot of things that um, have immediate appeal to me, but I don't write off that there's anything that, frankly, I won't find something to to really, you know, clamp onto and be enthusiastic about. So you've got a very impressive bookcase uh, just over your shoulder there, and there's another one that is sort of a little bit oblique to us. But uh, what's the what's been the most uh, uh, What's motivated you the most? Which one has sort of appealed to you? Which which book has sort of spoken to you? Uh, you know, actually, uh, this book was actually pretty good. Uh, <laughs> that's no, actually, deep. That's my book, Deep Value, for the folks who are at home. There we go. T- so, t- Tim's completely pandering. That's right. <laughs> uh, this was not prearranged. I wanted to spring this on you at some point. Toby, I love but, it. Um, now, um, you know, actually... I've read about, or I read about 90 plus books a year. And a lot of folks think, oh, you know, he's trying to be that, you know, cliche, hey, you know, the, the best CEOs read, you know, six books a month, read 100 books a year, whatever else. And they don't do anything now, else. Frankly, it's it's more tied to a bit of insecurity, if I'm going to be entirely candid. Um, you know, when you play football, you're very aware, especially these days, of how much cumulative impact you've absorbed through your head. And I'm more fortunate than most that my cranium is actually about 80% concrete. So <laughs> that actually has helped preserve um, a fair amount of uh, my gray matter up to this point. But the more I can read, especially across different disciplines, and the more I can maybe apply it to what I'm doing professionally, the better I feel about how my brain is hopefully not betraying me the way that my knees, and my uh, shoulders, and everything else might be at this point. Um, so some of the books that um, this year, for example, that I've been especially keen on, and uh, this was, I think, uh, Daniel Crosby had actually recommended this and a few others, um, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. This is essentially making a lot of behavioral finance and some Nassim Taleb type of um, philosophy very readable and consumable. It's actually very engaging. I listened to the audio book um, read by the author, and it was almost as much fun listening to him tell what was in the book as it is reading and underlining. So um, that's probably been my favorite book so far. And um, I actually was very lucky to um, get a, a collection of papers um, from Cliff Asin. So I got to give him a shout out because he and Jim O'Shaughnessy, you, Toby, Jeff Mackey, a lot of folks on FinTwit have been fantastic about, um, you know, supporting various aspects of, of my transition right now. But also 
um, sent me that book on um, some of the papers that have gone, uh, basically been um, uh, produced by AQR. And uh, that's been very educational from a finance standpoint for me. So there's every year I actually put out a blog. It's the only blog I do once a year, essentially recounting what I thought were some of the more interesting books. And, you know, it's kind of a self-indulgent exercise, but, um, you know, something I've done for like 14 years. So you know, you're, you're just kind of through. You're a great Twitter follower. Just tell everybody your Twitter handle right now. Normally, I do that at the end, but let's do it now because uh, folks should follow you on Twitter. Uh, um, it's at 77CYKO, uh, Psycho, Cy being Cyclones, Co for KO for Cone. Um, I thought that was clever at the time, way back when I got on there. And I really didn't realize how path dependent I would be on a handle. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, um, Twitter's been fantastic. I mean, even leading up to um, this session, I was actually, you know, just going through Twitter and laughing my tail off because I mean, there's so many characters, so much that is interesting that I wouldn't have encountered. Um, otherwise, Toby, I'm not so sure if we would have ever come across other than maybe at a conference or something. I mean, no, if it weren't true. for Twitter, Twitter's amazing. And I mean, um, as much as LinkedIn is a great resource for a lot of professionals, um, I would say that Twitter is about a hundred times force multiplier on LinkedIn. Um, so really some just amazing. Somebody described yesterday, I saw this on Twitter, somebody described LinkedIn is the conference that you go to and Twitter is the bar after the, after the conference, or it's the bar <laughs> at the conference. It's, it's where actually you are at really revealed. Where you do the you business. Know? I mean, yeah. And, and that's half the, the reason that, um, frankly, I'm always astonished that people say that I'm a great follower because I don't actually add a whole lot of substance to the conversation around different financial matters. Mostly, I'm going to, you know, give a maybe a snarky football player's interpretation of, you know, what's going on and, you know, some type of pun or dad humor or whatever, or, you know, essentially just railing on um, the existence of Australia, things like that. And or non-existence. <laughs> there you go. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing platform though. And, um, I'm incredibly grateful for, I mean, actually, uh, invested in a, a hedge fund, um, Artco Capital. Um, I, sh I probably shouldn't even say that actually, because, uh, uh, no, but, that's okay. Know, uh, I've had I had uh, I had Peter on. Peter was on an yeah. earlier episode. Uh, Peter Rabover from Artcade yeah. Capital. I'll have to look up what what episode number that is. But you can go back through the back catalog and find the interview with Peter. He specialises in uh, micro cap, PE style micro cap investment. And I mean, the guy is constantly impressing me. He's brilliant. Um, and I mean, obviously, that's very niche what he does. But man, that's a niche that, frankly, I, I couldn't find you know, too many good solutions, uh, independent of, uh, uh, engaging with him. So that's been, I think close to three years and that's been good. But I mean, th there's all folks like Lawrence Hamtel and, and I mentioned, um, you know, he's also been a guest. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I remember watching that and, you know, um, I, there's a lot of his stuff that I hadn't read that I went back and looked at as a result of that pod, because, um, you know, things that I, I see him tweet and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll read that later. And I never do. I'm like, gosh, that was interesting. I want to go back and you know, uh, if you recompose international indexes relative to the U.S., the valuations are relatively similar, that type of thing. I was right, actually, that's that, fascinating insight. Yeah. So, and that's just it. That, that's why um, all my career, I've actually had a great deal of humility about how much I don't know. That's part of the reason that motivates me to read as much as I do and to be around so many smart people on Twitter, to be surrounded by so many, you know, fantastic intellects who are very generous in producing, you know, the fruits of you know, their efforts and granted they're looking for some recognition, you know, possibly, you know, some business in some way, but it's an impressive marketplace of ideas and uh, even beyond the humor and entertainment aspects. I mean, I think that Twitter is missing out on an opportunity to monetize this product. I mean, I'd, I'd hesitate to say, <laughs> Don't say it too loudly. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan of that Rory Sutherland book. I've been a lot, I've been a fan of Rory Sutherland for a long time. 
because he he writes about behavioral uh, ideas, but he writes about it in the context of advertising because he was a he's I think he's the chairman or the worldwide chairman vice of chairman, yeah. vice chairman is it of, of Ogilvy, which was that was David Ogilvy who also wrote a great book about uh, advertising, which I have in my bookshelf back there. It's one of the red ones. <laughs> Uh, Ogilvy on advertising, which he talked about. He, he he's sort of got this quantitative approach to advertising, where they'd go and measure things, but then the the uh, the magic was in the copy. And so Sutherland is the kind of heir to that whole idea, and the way that he sort of laments a little bit the uh, the the amount of sort of quant that has come in, and he's got these interesting solutions that are you wouldn't ever expect. So one of the ones that that I rem- remember from the book is that they talk about how do we make the, the trains go faster between these two um, mm-hmm. points. And he said, people don't want the train to go faster. What they want to be able to do is to get onto any train going through because then they're enti- you need to measure their commute from their front door to where they're trying to get to. And if you let them get onto any train rather than the single one that they bought the ticket for, they can show up at almost any time. And it's not kind of as... as int- if they if they have to get onto the one train, they have to be there 30 minutes before the train arrives, otherwise they miss it. And in the time that they're there, two other trains going in the same direction may have left that they don't have tickets for. But if you made the ticket kind of fungible for any of the trains, they could get there two minutes before the train leaves. And if they miss it, then it's not such a big deal because you get on the next one or you get on that one. So he's got these very kind of creative left brain behavioral solutions to what look like quantitative problems and i kind of love the book for that reason oh and you know one of the things that stayed with me that i'd never connected with in other behavioral finance contexts was um he made the observation that people think that the conscious brain is the oval office when in reality it's the press office it's the one responsible for explaining what the hell the oval office was tweeting about you know that type of thing and um, you know, from that standpoint, um, that really resonated with me because I'm also reading a book right now um, that just came out by Bill Bryson. I think it's called The Body. Um, he writes great stuff. Um, yeah. Very entertaining, very engaging. He's got one about one th- Australia. Oh, I, in the Sunburn country, right? Is that? I think I, I, think, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's actually one I need to read yet. But I've I've read about like three or four of his books. It's it's fiction, Tim, because it's a non-existent place. <laughs> you know what though? I mean, we all have those fever dreams, right? And they seem very real at the time, but. <laughs> Um, no, the, the interesting thing is that, uh, that I didn't realize is that the brain, because we actually have about a, a 0.2 second delay between what our senses pick up and what we feel or what we perceive, the brain actually has evolved to extrapolate 0.2 seconds ahead. So what we're actually seeing in real time is seldom what's actually going on. We're actually extrapolating a small amount, which probably to me, not only does that have fascinating implications from a finance standpoint, we're accustomed, we're, we're frankly evolutionary, com- evolutionarily compelled to produce forecasts. You know, even right. if it's only a fraction of a second ahead, you know, that's something we're comfortable with, something that we insist upon. We don't like simply just providing or have, making provisions for what might happen and adapting. We have to know what somebody thinks is going to happen before we're satisfied, even if that person's forecast is no more valuable than, you know, essentially my forecast. So, um, it, it's it's amazing, and you know, there's a lot of things that seem like deficiencies in how we uh, invest, but you know, we're survival necessities in many cases. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you, Tim. We're we're coming up on time. If folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of going about doing that? Uh, you know, um, uh, DMs are open on Twitter, um, so you know, finding me at um, at seventy seven psycho c y k o. 
And if you can handle all the dog pics and everything else like that, um, <laughs> glad to have you as a follower. But uh, uh, just I always just enjoy engaging with folks. If, if folks have an interesting take or you know they're they're got a good sense of humor, I mean that, that's somebody that I want to interact with on a regular basis. And that's the that's the really amazing thing about Twitter. Is and that's that's you got to tell us a little bit about Hank. Oh my goodness. Um, well, actually, one thing I was going to show here that I forgot to. Um, just because a lot of people doubt the veracity of that coconut story. This, if you can see this, sorry, I'm trying to figure out. You hold this up was the coconut. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And uh, so this was, yeah, uh, against my noggin. So um, it's about the size of a softball, I suppose. Hard and yellow wasn't like one of those brown furry ones. But um, yeah, like uh, Hank is just this little cavachon, 15 pound dog. I mean, I've always had big Labradors and, you know, the 60, 70, 80 pound dogs. And my wife's like, we're getting another dog. It's going to be a, a tiny dog. And so Hank looks like a sawed off golden retriever. I mean, he totally looks like he got <laughs> shortchanged with half the leg length. And um, uh, I don't know, he's, he's just a, a, a funny dog. I never thought I'd actually be that big into a little dog. And I'm walking him around the neighborhood and it looks ridiculous, right? It's like, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> from True Lies with that little teacup terrier walking around. Um, but... Yeah, it's a, he's a, a great dog. So I unabashedly will post pictures, uh, you know, every few days or so uh, of Hank. So yeah, it's a good, it's thing. a good looking dog. I can I can confirm he's a good looking dog, just from the just from the twitters on uh, just from the photos on Twitter. Uh, what about an email address? Do you want to share your your, your email? Sure. Um, Tim Cone seven zero at Hotmail. So yes, I am Gen X. So Hotmail is the. <laughs> um, All right. But, that, uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll stick I'll stick that in the show notes. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Tim Cohn, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Toby. This has been great.